2: Elizabeth Warren has big plans for the economy. Could they work in practice?
0: What she wants to do is rebalance economic and political power back towards the middle class.
2: And can money really buy happiness? In
1: the Great Depression in 1929, you can see the index just falls off a cliff. And interestingly,
2: just before the stock market crash, huge optimism in society. You're listening to Money Talks from Economist Radio. I'm Patrick Lay. First up, Monday was Charlie Scharf's first day on the job as head of Wells Fargo. The embattled bank has been without a permanent chief executive for six months, and Mr Scharf, the former CEO of Visa and Bank of New York Mellon, has an unenviable task ahead, rehabilitating a company which for three years has been under a big, dark cloud. In 2016, it emerged that for several years, Wells staff had been opening ghost accounts – for credit cards and savings and whatnot, in pursuit of demanding internal targets. Further evidence of jiggery-pokery has emerged since. Wells is still limited by the unprecedented sanctions imposed by the Federal Reserve in 2018, including a cap on the size of its balance sheet. Alice Fulwood is our Wall Street correspondent and has been following Wells Fargo's trials and tribulations. Hello, Alice. Hello, Patrick. Now, Charlie Scharf went into work for his first day on Monday... Can you sketch out his to-do list for us? I, I bet it's pretty long.
3: Yes, he has lots of tasks to um, to focus on. I think that there are sort of three things that he will initially want to consider at first, though. Number one is dealing with the regulators. So Wells Fargo has been operating under what's known as a consent order, uh, which is where they are sort of responding to a lot of regulator concerns about the account scandal and various mishaps since capping their balance sheet at the end of 2017 level for almost two years now. So getting out from under that consent order, fixing all of the problems that regulators think that, that Wells has um, is going to be his number one priority. And then second is reinvigorating the brand in the eyes of consumers. Um, obviously, sort of the headlines about the fake account scandal, Tarnished what once was a sort of very strong and very well-respected brand and then third is that you know Wells has kind of been in firefighting mode for three years um, since this scandal broke they've been rudderless almost for the last six months and during that time, their competitors have had you know, a lot of time to focus on their strategy and sort of hone their message, work on technology and growing their banks. So, you know, doing a deep dive of Wells' businesses and deciding what strategy is best for Wells um, is his longer-term goal. But the regulatory goal is probably the first thing he really wants to, to get ticked off.
2: Right. Let's unpack the, the last of those, though, the need for a, a new differentiated strategy at Wells. Because if we go back to September 2016... When this scandal broke, Wells was the most valuable bank in the United States. It had the biggest stock market value. Since then, it's fallen back to third and a pretty distant third, right? Because JP Morgan's now got a market cap of 390 billion or so. And Wells is just on around 220 with Bank of America somewhere in between. So it does have an awful lot of ground to make up. How can it go about closing that gap?
3: Right, so I think what you've seen at JP Morgan and Bank of America is them really focusing on this scale, harnessing the sort of power of of being these massive banks, so making scale count. The ways that they've done that have mostly been using cutting edge technology or upgrading their technology. So JP Morgan is probably the tech behemoth and it's been doing a lot of work to get its costs down so that it can offer low cost but relatively high tech experience to consumers and that sort of seems to be working quite well for them. Revenue growth and profit growth has been very strong over the past three years. Bank of America, I guess, do something slightly more a targeted version of that, which is that they have the scale and presence and technology in place. And what they've done is target the, the slices of consumers or, or, or corporate clients that they didn't have great presence with. Uh, so for example, sort of middle market businesses, and you saw that strategy really pay off in their earnings last week. So the balance sheet of JP Morgan and Bank of America is a realm of 8-10% to 10% larger than they were um, at the end of 2017. Wells is the same size.
2: And the sorting out the relationship with the regulator and getting that cap removed, that's really key because then you can't exploit the scale that Wells has already got and you certainly can't expand it until you've got that asset cap sorted out.
3: Yes, exactly. Wells does have some strengths. So, you know, it's, it's America's largest lender. It has remained that way. It does have pretty good technology. It does have one of the best apps. Um, it is San Francisco based. They have a lot of technological investment as well. It's just it's, it's more that they've they've I guess they've been distracted um, over the past three years, and um, and they also have been constrained by these regulatory issues.
2: Now, why did? Mr. Shaft's two predecessors failed, in particular, his immediate predecessor, Tim Sloan, who replaced John Stumpf in the early days of this saga and had to go in March. Why couldn't they sort things out? I mean, they knew the bank very well. They'd been at Wells for donkeys years. They knew where all the bodies were buried or they should have done. So why were they unable to, to put things right, in particular, Mr. Sloan?
3: If you cast your mind back to before the scandal, you know, Wells had come through the global financial crisis as the sort of most reputed bank. It hadn't really been as, as affected as its peers. It had this very strong brand. And they also had been the darling of of Wall Street because of this incentive program and the schemes that they put in place to cross sell products. And that ultimately ended up being kind of their undoing in the fake account scandal because the pressure that they put on employees and the incentive schemes combined to mean that you know there was there was pressure on people to open accounts and you could do it in this fraudulent way i guess and i think everyone within wells could see the advantage of bringing you know an outsider in someone who who wasn't wedded to the sort of old Wells Fargo model and also didn't have all that that baggage associated with them. Mr. Scharf does get to come in with a clean slate and a fresh pair of eyes and look at how all these these issues can be resolved.
2: I was surprised to learn that he's going to stay based in New York rather than move to San Francisco where Wells Fargo is based. I mean, apart from a 3,000-mile commute, is that going to make any difference to his ability to do his job?
3: It is very unusual for the CEO of a bank not to be based at its headquartered operations. They were looking for a long time for the right candidate. And I imagine they would have preferred someone who, who would have been willing to relocate to San Francisco. But New York, Wall Street is where most of the banks are based. And if you're looking for a really experienced sort of banker, then, then possibly it's difficult to tempt them over to the, the West Coast. Mr. Sharf will be based in New York. I imagine that will, will make things trickier. But clearly, they didn't think that it was a, an insurmountable challenge for him.
2: As you said, his first task would probably be to repair the bank's relationship with regulators. Then he's got to win customers over again. There's a third group that's going to be very important, isn't there? And that's investors. So what's the talk on Wall Street? How do people rate Charlie Shaft's prospects?
3: The share price did rally on the, on the announcement. It went up about 5%. So clearly, they were sort of pleased that they would got someone in the, in the role. But it has basically gone sideways since even as other banks have continued to climb they want to give him some time before judging uh, his performance. But again, they're beating the same tune as the board are, which is that their number one priority is to get this consent order off. And if he can do that, then I think he will have, have won them over. Uh, so that's that's really going to be his goal.
2: And if he's based in New York, he'll certainly have his ear close to what investors are thinking. Thank you, Alice.
3: Thank you so much, Patrick.
2: When the fake account scandal at Wells Fargo broke, one of the figures in Washington who came down hardest on the bank and its executives was Elizabeth Warren.
0: At best, you were incompetent. At worst, you were complicit. And either way, you should be fired. Wells Fargo needs to
3: start over. And
2: that the senator from Massachusetts is now leading the field of Democratic candidates for America's presidency in several polls. She stands out from the large crowd of hopefuls for one reason in particular her abundance of policy ideas, making headlines with her sweeping plans to re-engineer American capitalism.
0: Medicare for all is the gold standard. It is the way we get healthcare coverage for every single American. It's time to break up these big companies so they don't have so much power over everyone else. I've got a plan to protect consumers and competition. Second. Workers would have a seat at the table when big decisions are made. My bill would make it so that at big corporations...
2: Her detailed proposals represent the Democrats' most rigorous challenge to the capitalist status quo since Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal in the 1930s. Our correspondent Charlotte Howard has been investigating whether Senator Warren's ideas could work in practice and how they would reshape the American economy. Charlotte joined us on the line now from New York. Hello, Charlotte. Hi, Patrick. Some of Senator Warren's proposals are much better known than others. Can you outline the package for us, how they might look to potential voters?
0: The package is so broad, it's quite hard to do in just a few moments. But her guiding philosophy is that for decades, people with money and power have used their influence to tilt the rules in their favour And what she wants to do is rebalance economic and political power back towards the middle class, back towards average American working families. And she has a whole variety of ways to do that, from a big increase in taxes on the very wealthy and on companies, as well as a wide swath of social programs, for instance, her support for single-payer health care, as well as an expansion of subsidized child care, but also very significantly creating new rules for how businesses within America should operate, both specific industries and broadly big business.
2: Well, Charlotte, as you say, there, there is a, an astonishing amount of detail in Senator Warren's proposals. So can we take a couple of examples maybe and try and unpick what it might mean for particular sectors perhaps? So one that she's crossed swords with before – Banks. After the financial crisis, she was one of the most prominent and persuasive critics of the financial industry. So, what has she got in store for them this time?
0: Elizabeth Warren would want to revive the Glass Steagall Act, which separates banks' deposit taking business from riskier investment activities. And uh, the idea there is that hopefully doing that would place less pressure on the government to bail out these big financial institutions in the future. There's quite a lot of debate on whether. Uh, breaking up the banks would actually achieve that. Um, she has specific plans in mind for the private equity industry. So she would do away with a tax loophole for carried interest, which is something that many good government wonks uh, widely support. But she would also change the rules for liability for private equity in a way that would effectively shut the entire industry down. And that would have a pretty large impact given that private equity companies own so many, um, about 7,000 firms in America.
2: Let's take a close look at her position on healthcare. Of course, it's such a sensitive subject, isn't it, in the United States, because the costs of private healthcare can be so punitive.
0: Well, in this instance, she says that she supports Bernie Sanders' plan for Medicare for All. And that plan would move America to a single-payer system, which would be quite a dramatic impact. I think that it's fair to say that... With healthcare, it's sort of a good example for attention within Elizabeth Warren's campaign, which is that she identifies a problem which I think is widely acknowledged in this instance, healthcare, that healthcare costs are very high. A lot of people go uninsured or do without uh, needed medical treatment because of their costs, or they receive medical treatment and then find themselves bankrupt as they struggle to deal with the price of their care. So there's a clear argument for reform but there's disagreement over the solution. So Elizabeth Warren in general in her campaign has identified some very clear problems that are in need of attention, be it the rising income inequality in America, be it discrepancies in education, the fact that companies' profits continue to go up to ahistorical norms, which suggests that uh, the forces of competition are not properly at work. She's very good at diagnosing problems. And then she has detailed proposals for how to address them. And it's there that the controversy arises that she she has, has quite bold changes in mind for America's economy.
2: What are the risks associated with those? I mean, to what extent is she proposing the right remedies for the ills that she's diagnosed?
0: So that's right, that we... As a paper generally agree with the problems that she's identified. Big companies do have too much sway over American politics uh through their lobbying groups in Washington. There should be a higher inheritance tax and that there should be a higher minimum wage, but the some of the proposals that she has do pose big risks to thinking about how companies might operate in future, that they wouldn't be able to evolve with the times and adapt to changes in customer needs or um, changes in economic conditions, that there's a natural dynamism that's necessary in the American economy uh, that might be constrained by some of our plans.
2: Now, it's one thing to have policy proposals yet another thing to have very detailed ones. That's that's quite unusual in politics these days. But it's another thing still to implement policies. So how good is her track record at getting things that she wants onto the statute book into practice?
0: So she would point to the creation of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau as a big accomplishment. And her team, her policy team and advisors say that she is very well versed in administrative law from that experience. But there's a limit to the degree of of her agenda that can just be done through executive action. So changing America's healthcare system, that has to be done with Congress. She has very big plans for how to change the responsibilities for companies. That scale of change can only be done through legislation. And so it really will be interesting to see how much if she is elected, how much she's willing to compromise with the Republican Senate. She would come into this presidency with a very strong point of view that is quite out of the economic status quo. And there are some among her supporters who really are excited about that, that they view all of these many ideas, these thousands of words that comprise her proposals, essentially as a big bargaining chip to go into battle with Senate Republicans. But there are others who are more moderate, who would prefer a Democratic president that would seek to advance economic growth without upending the existing way of doing business in the country.
2: Now, the word socialist is one that's bandied around quite a lot in American politics, usually as an insult. If Elizabeth Warren becomes the Democratic nominee, this label is bound to be thrown at her by her opponents pejoratively. Is it accurate in this case? Is it it legitimate to say that that Elizabeth Warren's a socialist?
0: Not at all. I mean, she does see a role for single payer health systems, but there are all kinds of non-socialist countries in Europe which have single payer health systems. And she doesn't see a huge takeover of industry by the government. She's not going to have the government running banks, etc. So the charge that she's a socialist, I'm sure will be leveled against her. And that would be unfair.
2: Thanks very much, Charlotte. Thank you. You can read more about Senator Warren's plans and how they would reshape American capitalism in the upcoming edition of The Economist. If you're not yet a subscriber, listeners can get their first 12 issues for $12 or £12 by visiting economist.com slash radio offer. And finally, they say money can't buy you happiness – but most governments seem to believe it can, given their relentless focus on increasing GDP year after year. In fact, in economics, there's a long thread of researchers who've doubted whether overtime societies really do get happier as they get richer. But reliable, long-term evidence has been hard to get. Alok Jar, our science correspondent, is here to tell us more about a new study looking at exactly that. Hello, Alok. Hi, Patrick. So how do you measure happiness?
1: Well, let me ask you, how do you feel? Are you happy?
2: Yes, moderately.
1: Well, so that's basically how you measure happiness today. You ask people, and it's incredibly subjective. Um, and, you know, your happiness depends on how you felt yesterday. Tomorrow's happiness will depend on how you felt today. I mean, it's, it's a very difficult thing to measure. You know, we don't really have any long-term historical data. So a group of scientists, computer scientists, psychologists, and economists came together to sort of tackle this. And what they did was to use a psychological insight, which is that Generally speaking, it's been shown that people's mood can be gleaned from the things they write and they read. So they looked at the Google Books corpus, which is 8 million books, 6% of everything that's ever been physically published, plus millions and millions of newspaper articles, all the way back to 1820. And they crunched all the words in these, looked at how how emotionally charged these words were. So each word was given a valence, uh, a number which basically told you whether it was happy or sad. And then they just ran this through many, many computers and created um, an index of happiness going back to 1820 for four countries, Italy, Germany, the US and the UK.
2: What did they find?
1: When you put the index alongside historical events, it, it tracks really quite well. So, for example... Um, the US and the UK during the world wars, the happiness of their nations dipped. In the civil wars of uh, the 1860s in the US, happiness dips again in that country. In the Great Depression in 1929 there's a stock market crash, we know. And again in the US, and the UK, you can see the index just falls off a cliff. And interestingly, just before the stock market crash, huge optimism in society. So that fits with what we think of for these sorts of uh, bubbles and these crashes. These are not causations, uh, they're just correlations. So you put them against history and they correlate quite well with with what was going on in society at the time.
2: But at the same time, there are some curious anomalies in the study, aren't there? For example, in Germany, it seems that people got happier as the Second World War went on, indeed, right up until 1945. So how do they explain that Germans were apparently very happy when the Red Army was virtually at the gates of Berlin?
1: Bearing in mind, of course, that these are correlational studies, not causation. So we can only really speculate about what's causing or behind the happiness or or sadness. But it is perplexing that um, towards the end of the war, when they were clearly not winning, the the mood seems to be in the index still quite high. They were quite happy. The researchers postulate that this is because in Germany and also in Italy, actually, where mood seems to be quite high during the war. (laughs) The the governments w- were censoring books, the books and publications. So anything that was negative of the regime or critical was being censored away. And you could what you're seeing in the happiness of the nations at those points is actually a result of that censorship.
2: Given there are these anomalies, how reliable is the data? I mean, the meaning of words changes over time. The way people express happiness changes over time. Even the definition of happiness itself may change over time. How do they deal with that? Is it really reliable?
1: So there are a lot of things they did to verify and uh, make sure that their models were as accurate as possible. For example, they excluded books before 1820 because they felt that that's around the time when books were produced for the, the larger market, not just The complete elites. They're controlled for the changing meaning of words. So, awful today means something bad, but um, in history it's meant inspiring awe, literally the opposite. Same with the word um, fantastic. Fantastic used to mean something of fantasy, not true at all, whereas nowadays it's the best possible thing. They verified their model also because once they created everything and created the indices, they then checked with 30 or 40 years of Eurobarometer. So Eurobarometer is the uh, European uh, Union's annual sort of status of the continent measure. And it's seen as very reliable. And it's been around since the late 70s. And it's the longest time series of measurements of happiness. And it fit exactly well with with Eurobarometer. So they knew their model worked the last 40 years. They do admit there might be things they've not thought of. And this is the first draft of their model. I'm sure it'll it'll change.
2: Over the long term... As societies get richer, as all these societies have immeasurably over the past 200 years, have they got happier or are there other things which affect happiness more than just wealth?
1: So this is the big question, isn't it? If you get richer, are you happier? And you know the evidence that we have in the last few decades should suggest that, yes, people, when they get richer, do get happier. But there's a paradox because... Over long term, as countries get richer, the happiness stays roughly the same. The solution that these researchers have to that paradox is that actually, yes, money does help to increase your happiness, but the correlation is very small. It's just not actually that significant. It's not as significant, in fact, as just being healthier. A one-year increase in longevity, the happiness associated with that is equivalent to a 4.3% increase in GDP, which you know is an enormous increase in GDP, which most countries can only dream of. And even more than that, not being in a war is the most most sort of uh, happy inducing thing for countries. If you have a war, then the drop in national happiness can only be reversed by a 30% increase in GDP in the following year. So a 30% increase in GDP is phenomenal. I mean, that's no one does that. Well, one caveat that's the author's do make about this this particular index they've created is that it only really applies to developed nations. In less developed nations, obviously becoming richer is a much bigger part of becoming happier. Uh, we shouldn't sort of assume that this is going to be a, a universal measure
2: now for everything else. Let's finish with a concrete question about where we are in Britain in the early 21st century. Are people in this country happier than they were when... Our publication was founded in 1843.
1: With, with, again, a caveat that you can't actually compare absolute values for this index over hundreds of years. But you know, let's just throw that out the window for a minute and just do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's just <laughs> chuck that to one side. You have a wild <laughs> guess. So, so here we go. I'm looking at the graph here. And uh, the level we're at in the early 20th century, uh, the level in we 18... were actually exactly the same. <laughs> We're exactly the same in our happiness.
2: From which we should conclude that The Economist has made absolutely no <laughs> difference at all to the health, wealth and happiness of Britain. Well, that's rather mind, depressing. Bear in really.
1: mind there's been two world wars which have been really, really bad for everything. Maybe we brought everyone back from those, those, those depths. That's why I'd like to think about it.
2: Well, if you've come out even, I'll settle to that. Thanks, Alok. You're welcome. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Patrick Lane, and in London, this is The Economist.